Welcome to the Everyday Saint Podcast, brought to you by Cedar Fort Publishing and Media. I'm your host, Richard Bernard, and I'm excited to share with you inspiring stories from our authors and the journey behind their latest creations. In today's episode, we have the pleasure of meeting Richard Osler, the person behind Listen, Learn, and Love series. Richard will captivate your heart as he shares the story behind this incredible series and his latest work, Building the Good Ship Zion. We dive into the challenges faced by members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and explore how we can support and uplift those navigating those hurdles. If this episode has touched you and left you craving for more, I encourage you to join Richard on his personal journey in the busy Latter-day Saint podcast. There, you will discover an intimate glimpse into Richard's life, work, and passion, and his approach to studying the scriptures. Now, here's Richard. Richard, welcome to the podcast. Glad to be here, Richard. I've had the opportunity to uh, read your latest book, but uh, you have three books out. They all have the main title of Listen, Learn, and Love, which, by the way, reminds me of Stephen R. Covey's um, axiom, first seek to understand and then be understood. That's the first thing I thought when I, when I saw your titles. Um, do you feel that that's kind of the, the framework that you're working in? I like that. Um, I've read a lot of Steve Covey's work, and um, I think I even quoted that line, that very line you said in my first book. That's a powerful principle, and he was a gift to our community. Yes, absolutely. And so uh, how did this, you've got three books, and they all have the main title of Listen, Learn, and Love. But then there's a subtitle. The first one was Embracing LGBTQ Latter-day Saints. The second was Improving Latter-day Saint Culture. And this one is Building the Good Ship Zion. But I must tell you, I'm dyslexic. And <laughs> when, when I typed the title here of your third book, I actually had Building the God Ship Zion. And I thought, actually, that kind of fits, doesn't it? <laughs> I like that, Richard. <laughs> so, well, I'm... Good question. I'm in my mid-60s, and about 10 years ago, the YSA bishop, and I had um, priesthood responsibility for a couple of gay men in the ward that just opened up to me about their sexual orientation. And I recognized I didn't know very much about that space. I didn't know the latest things the church was teaching, and I wanted to do the right thing like we all do as Latter-day Saints. So I went on a little bit of a journey just to wipe my hard drive clean of everything I'd learned about this group of people. And God invited me in a spiritual impression just to listen to LGBTQ Latter-day Saints and let them define themselves for me. And so that's kind of, um, that led into the title of this book, Listen, because I had to do a lot of listening, um, which sometimes isn't a spiritual gift that men like me have. Um, I've had to work hard to develop listening skills, and then I've had to be willing to learn, um, even in my 50s and 60s, um, to recognize that I didn't even know sometimes the latest church teachings on some of these more sensitive topics. 
And then that gives me the ability to love, um, support, understand, nurture, and not add to someone's burdens with perhaps my uninformed opinions or um, prior um, understanding of more sensitive topics. So that's a little bit about how Listen, Learn, and Love came about. And that's then become the title of this book, these three books, and also the podcast I host. Well, the Embracing LGBTQ, Latter-day Saints, uh, was the first one. And um, then what caused you to get into the second one, which is Improving Latter-day Saint Culture? Um, and part of, I guess, the umbrella answer is I have a deep testimony and love for our church. And I've seen it bless so many people. All the good in my life comes membership in our church and following its teachings. And I had this desire to have it work for a wider group of people. And Mr. McConkie made a quote once, the gospel of Jesus Christ doesn't marginalize people. People marginalize people. So in my experience in this YSA assignment, I met with a lot of people that had a fundamental testimony of the church for having a hard time feeling like they belonged or were welcome or loved or supported. And so all of these books are kind of under this umbrella of what can we do as a body of saints to make um, our church more welcoming, um, a place of belonging. And so the second book is Improving Latter-day Saint Culture is really built off of Sister McConkie's quote. And we just take different topics, uh, like better supporting women in the church, um, all these books are supportive of church leaders, church doctrine. They're not activist books to change anything. But I had like a couple women write the chapter of how do we can better support women? Because as a man, I recognize that could be a blind spot for me um, to better and to how I can better value women's voices and encourage their voices in ward council and our congregations. So that's one chapter. There's about seven or eight chapters in that book. They're not chapters you have to read one to read the next to read the next. They're just standalone chapters. A chapter in there is ministering to those with questions about the church. And I, I kind of feel the tools to bring somebody in the church are sometimes not the same tools to keep somebody in the church. Often it's a whole different toolbox. Um, if someone's working through questions about our history or current issues, um, I believe in read, pray, and study the scriptures, but sometimes there's additional tools they need or uh, a new model to process the complexities that some feel in our faith. And so one of the chapters is ministering to those with church, generate, with church questions. Um, so that's an example of two chapters in that book, Richard, but it's all part of this umbrella of trying to help um, our church grow and help more people feel like they can stay. Well, um, all your chapters deal with what I would call it the outliners of, of the church. And this one that you just mentioned, um, as far as doubt, I, I keep thinking of the Givens book um, about doubt. Yeah. And um, it, it's okay to have doubt. In fact, it's doubt that motivates a lot of us to um, search deeper in, in our faith. And yeah, so, the Givens are great mentors 
um, and examples for me. I'm glad you brought them up. Yes. Uh, in fact, uh, he was on my podcast, uh, oh my goodness, six months ago, maybe five months ago. And I had a great conversation with him. But the, the book, uh, what, title is Crucible of the Doubt. Yeah. Yeah, that's what it's titled. Crucible of the Doubt uh, is a tremendous book. And I, after I read it, I think it came out quite a few years ago, I said every member of the church should read this book because it really, it, it, it's just, it, it's okay to doubt. It's where you go to find your answers for that doubt. And if, I agree. You, if your answer is to go to the internet and find out what everyone hates about the church, <laughs> then your your doubt is going to simply grow. So, well, I want to get into the, the new book. Uh, you've got seven chapters. And as I was reading it, I was highlighting things and I thought, oh, this is good. And I got asked me about this and this. And I got, oh, my goodness, we'll be talking for the next five hours. And so I thought, well, <laughs> how are we, we going to best do this? And so um, let's just take a chapter at a time. Um, I love this phrase you have in the first chapter about foyer sitters. Talk to us a little bit about foyer sitters. Yeah, that's not a real complicated chapter. In fact, it could be one. You know, we had this discussion as why say, basically, we pass the sacrament to those in the foyer. And we talked about it about 30 minutes, and then we realized we looked at a handbook, and there's nothing in the handbook about passing this, not passing the sacrament to those in the foyer. So there's an important principle in that whole discussion is we shouldn't create new rules that are in the handbook. We shouldn't be sifters. Or, um, we should be gatherers. We shouldn't create sort of, you know, I think may I have may have said or somebody may have said, well, if they're really committed to the church, they'd be in the chapter in the chapel. Um, and so we just err on the side of grace and bring the sacrament to those in the foyer. And we we take the sacrament to those that are sick. Um, and then later, as I've done some podcasts, I did a podcast with somebody who sat in the foyer. And I, it's part of listening, learning and building to love is. I've never listened to a foyer sitter before, Richard, and the backstory of why they sit in the foyer. And it was really moving to me to understand that's the best they could do. So that chapter kind of talks about why summer in the foyer. It's not an invitation for us all to leave the chapel and sit in the foyer, um, but it's it's trying to create Zion in the sense that we're extending the stakes of Zion. We're not sifters, we're gatherers. We're not creating new rules. Um, that don't exist, and we're giving everybody the opportunity to partake of the sacrament. But that kind of relatable example scales into other things that sometimes, at least I as a Latter-day Saint, um, put on my sifting eyes and say, they're not quite measuring up, or why aren't they quite where I think they should be? And maybe people are just doing the best they can. And we should, you know, acknowledge that they may have a backstory of why they're not quite where we are, for example, and and help them where they are and meet them where they are and help them move forward. Well, I like that phrase, um, sifters and gatherers, and that we need to be gatherers. I'm looking at a uh, quote from President Nelson that you had in your first chapter, and he said, good inspiration is based upon good information, and that's really what you're talking about. 
Yeah. Yes, is is Great finding quote. is finding that information out. Um, in my podcast with uh, Brad Wilcox, he brought up a phrase uh, that we have to be careful in our sacrament meeting um, when we are seeing people use their mobile devices. And it was my tendency, I have to admit, to think, what are they doing? <laughs> it, it's sacrament meeting. And yet, um, I use my mobile device during sacrament meeting to write inspiration and notes of what the speakers are talking about. And I, I'm using an Apple Pencil and an iPad. But I, I've seen people in sacrament meeting, they're watching a baseball game or something, and it, it is so easy it's human nature to judge. Yeah. And yet we don't know what's really going on with them. And even if it, okay, it's a baseball game, or I've even seen them doing video games. Um, maybe that's what's keeping them <laughs> in there so that they can hear the message. So I, I really like this, that we need to be gathers and decide how we can help people rather than how we can exclude them. Yeah, I love President Nelson. He talks about the gathering of Israel, and I think most of us think of that couple praying for the missionaries to knock on their door. Um, and I certainly think of that, but I also think our own members are Israel. And what can we do to gather them so they feel welcome and meet them where they are? That doesn't sell out commandment-keeping or personal progress. But um, including LGBTQ Latter-day Saints, they're Israel, and they need to be filled with love and support and kindness. The church's website says very kind things about LGBTQ members, and they need to be filled with that in our congregation so they feel gathered and feel like who they are is needed and welcome. So uh, that principle scales a lot, and I love you know the example of the mobile device. <laughs> and we just show grace and, and try to help people. I love – so that's um, – um, a little bit about chapter one. All right. Well, chapter two, turning down a calling. I've always thought you don't turn down callings. <laughs> now, when I served a bishop long ago, I'm thinking, when did I serve? My goodness, in the 80s. We're going back, what, 40 years. Um, I was always amazed that sometimes people would actually turn down a calling. And I, I still remember to this day one humble man. He was, uh, he was a barber by occupation, and he was retired, and he was very, very humble and a quiet man. And uh, we felt to call him and felt the Lord inspired us to call him to uh, be one of the clerks. And he just turned it down. He said, I, I, I can't do that. Wow. And I was just, honestly, that was my first time that someone said no. <laughs> And I, I honestly didn't know what to do. <laughs> but um, anyway, we, I've moved on. But um, your chapter is about turning down callings. What do you have to say about that? Well, yeah, the, the, the title is, Is It Okay to Turn Down a Calling? And it's not an invitation to turn down callings. And we have lots of examples where someone bravely accepts a calling an inspired leader brought forth, and it ended up being a wonderful experience. But I start with my mission in England, where a really dedicated high counselor, while I was serving the England, left the, left the church. He was just overwhelmed with the callings. 
that he had. And I've wondered if there's more of a middle ground where he could have um, found a way to still stay in the church and um, not accept the calling at that time or dial down his callings. And I don't know the backstory there. Um, doctrinally, I'm not sure when we cut, when we got baptized or even um, took our temple endowment, if we committed at that point to accept every calling that comes our way. I don't want to create a feeling in the church where um, we have to choose right now between accepting every calling that comes our way um, or a feeling that that's so overwhelming that some feel like I just, I'm going to leave the church because that feels so overwhelming to me. Now, most people don't feel that way. I don't feel that way. But there's some that kind of get overwhelmed with just the long um, a feeling of it needing to accept every calling their way. So the chapters kind of talks about two-way communication where um, we can explore callings as leaders. We can try and understand more of a backstory about someone's ability to serve. We can give them time to think about it and get their own personal revelation um, that it's the right calling for them and not ask for an immediate yes or no. Um, so there's just kind of some, and I'm not claiming to be an expert in this, just some of the things we've tried to role model in our YSA ward um, to help just improve the culture around callings. Because um, I don't want anybody to leave the church just because they're overwhelmed in a current calling or overwhelmed that they've already kind of committed to say yes to every calling that comes their way. And that in itself causes them to separate themselves from the church. Um, I love the callings I've had. I've seen so many people thrive in their callings. It's such a core part and a good part of our faith is we don't have a paid ministry. We have local lay people that do so much good. But sometimes there's just some stories in there about how we can do better. Well, I think that's one thing of your book. In fact, uh, from what I've been able to gather, all your books, you've, you've been able to get all of these stories from people uh, to kind of give backstories of, of, of what they're doing and why they're doing it. And uh, I, I think that's a great value within the book, to be able to hear why people didn't take a calling or why they they accepted callings. And so I, I think that's one of the great values of your book is the the stories that you gathered. I don't know how you got all these stories gathered <laughs> together. That That's quite an accomplishment in itself. Well, the third chapter really interests, it really jumped out to me, and I thought, boy, this is something I... I've really got to read closely because the title just grabbed me and I go, what is he talking about? And it's, it's generated church generated, not just pain in general, but church generated pain and trauma. Do people in the church have church generated pain? This is probably the most tender chapter in the whole book. And I had an LDS, therapist write it because I'm not I don't have any church generated pain or trauma and I'm not a therapist but I met with enough people um, on the podcast we do and just people that reach out that um, some people have difficult church experiences and most of those I don't think are with malice um, in other words I don't think someone says I'm going to go hurt somebody but some people have 
difficult church experiences with the leader, with a, a situation, and their natural flight or fight response is to separate themselves from the source of the pain. But they often usually have a fundamental testimony of the spirit. So they sort of need a different set of tools to work through that. And Jesus can help heal our souls, but sometimes they need a therapist to sort of heal their, to help them from a therapy standpoint, to help heal their heart so they can not be triggered as they drive up to church or not be triggered by a leader or a Sunday school environment. Um, I like to think of it as the visual imagery I use is the swimming pool and the water in the swimming pool is the pure gospel of Jesus Christ. And that brings hope and healing, but it needs a support. <laughs> and that's the sides of the pool that represent our institutional church with our priesthood, priesthood keys and leaders called of God. But that smooth porcelain that represents the pool isn't sometimes has a jagged edge below the waterline. And somebody may lean back and I lean back and I just feel the smooth porcelain and it feels great. But somebody may lean back and occasionally get jarred with an unsmooth edge. And, and so that's the visual imagery that, you know, even if, I haven't experienced, I recognize that some have, and I've learned to sort of validate their pain, even if I don't experience it, as a ministering tool to help them be able to stay in the church. So it's a tender subject, um, and I just think um, we're mature enough in our doctrine and our as our church to maybe to validate that this could happen for some, and 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 tools to help them stay in the church and heal. Because all the trauma in my life, Richard, doesn't come from the church. The church is a source of healing. But if the trauma actually comes from the source of healing, it gets more complex to heal. And that's what this chapter is trying to help us do, either in our own lives, if that's your road, or for parents or local leaders, just have better tools to help others that have experienced some of this. Well, and you also mentioned in that is trauma, which I would assume is more than pain. Um, but uh, yes, well, uh, the next chapter are those who leave the church. <laughs> well, this is another tender chapter. Why would an active Latter-day Saint write a chapter on how did we treat those that leave the church? And um, it's not a chapter inviting people to leave the church, but the reality is we, we as Latter-day Saints, most of us, I think, have friends or some family members um, that have stepped away from the church. And sometimes um, that creates a lot of tension. And the people that leave the church often are angry at the church and um, the people in the church and they say unkind and unhelpful things. And it's really following the call from President Nelson to reduce divisiveness. And sometimes this is a really charged area where there's almost more pain in the space versus somebody who's never joined the church. So sometimes we have more peace with a fellow neighbor that's never been in the church than a neighbor who's left the church because there's tension around that. We don't know to talk to them about it. We don't know what to say. And so this is just a chapter on what we can do to follow President Nelson's charge from, even though this book was written before that talk came out, 
um, to reduce divisiveness. Um, and it's a two-way road. It, it takes work on both sides. And so I used examples of President Nelson's visit to visit um, Prime Minister of New Zealand, Jacinda Ardern, which is a lapsed Latter-day Saint, um, the Prime Minister of New Zealand, and his public conversation about her and her work in New Zealand and their desire to work together to solve issues that were going on in New Zealand kind of role modeled that. Um, now, I don't know what kind of private conversations President Nelson had um, with Jacinda, but it was very respectful. Um, and they sort of said, let's work together to solve problems. He's, you know, prime minister and he's president of the church. And so um, there's examples throughout that chapter of how to do this. And I think it pleases the God I believe in when we are a church that honors personal agency and that agency can sometimes cause tension and pain. And I think our Heavenly Father is pleased when we work hard um, to reduce that tension and pain and still see each other as the same human family. That was a great story of her. I, um, As I read that, and I, I found it interesting you did research on her and that she was a uh, an unwed mother while she was um, a leader of that nation <laughs> and things. Yeah. And uh, yet he never mentions any of that. And he just loves her and tries to find common ground. And she spoke at Harvard University. Our daughter was graduating there and spoke very respectably of her Mormon upbringing and how that being a minority religion in a country was a helpful thing for her. And I think it's part of her effectiveness as a prime minister is her, is her Mormon heritage. She was very respectful in an environment where you didn't need to say anything about her upbringing. Or, um, so I thought it was really mature of her to talk about her Mormon upbringing in such positive terms in that audience. So it kind of goes back to this two-way street. Well, your next chapter... Um, ties in really, in my opinion, with what we just discussed. Because, as you mentioned, we don't know what to say to somebody who leaves the <laughs> church. And the next chapter is dealing with death, and a lot of people are uncomfortable of what to say to somebody who's lost a husband or a wife or a child. And, uh, and I think this is for a lot of us. Um, we simply don't know what to say, not just with death, not with somebody that just um, left the church, but also dealing with people with handicaps. Now, I, I served in deaf branches for 20 years and um, very conscious of the deaf and have a deaf grandson. And, and in my training, uh, I decided to leave the insurance business after 25 years and go into teaching the deaf. And I became very aware of, and I became very aware of those who um, have what we call disabilities. Now the deaf do not consider deafness a disability, but people don't know how to treat somebody that's in a wheelchair. Uh, they don't know how to talk to somebody that's on crutches or something, or somebody that's got various other physical problems or mental problems. And I think that's really those who leave the church, we're not sure how to address them. And so we just don't say anything. And also with those with death. So let, let's talk a little bit 
about death. What are some of the things you shouldn't say to somebody who um, just lost a loved one? Well, um, first of all, thanks for all your work with the death. Um, I don't know much about that group. Um, so thank you for all you've done there and changing careers in your service to this wonderful group of people. Um, yeah, this is a blind spot for me. I haven't had a lot of experience in this space, and I had people on the podcast talk about um, their own experiences with death, and I realized that I needed better skills to talk to this group because my natural thing would not to say anything because I didn't want to say the wrong thing. Right. And I recognize that's often the wrong thing to do. And so, as you pointed out earlier, most of these books are filled with stories of people walking this road. And a lot of these stories come from the podcast, and I pull it into the book. Um, but one of the things culturally that I'm sensitive to is, as Latter-day Saints, we have this idea, we know the plan of salvation, and so we know um, we're going to be with loved ones in the next life. And I'm worried that creates a culture where we don't let people grieve. And we sometimes have role models, even missionaries, that don't come home because they're so faithful. They don't come home for the loss of a close family member, or we allow grief, or we even maybe talk about someone who's so faithful that they've just kind of moved on. And I think we can allow people to have a, a testimony, the plan of salvation, and have ongoing grief. My therapist friends tell me that grief, um, letting people grieve, either in ourselves or in others, is the path to healing. And it may take a long time. It may take a lifetime. And and some of the platitudes, which is kind of your core question, what should we not say? Well, most of my guests have told me it's not good to say, well, they were needed more on the other side. Um, these are platitudes that minimize the complexity of their pain. It may keep me, keep me emotionally safe, but it doesn't um, validate the complexity of their situation. Um, one, you know, like they're more needed on the other side or you'll see them again. They really need people to sit with them in the pain uh, and, and to continue to talk about their loved one. My wife and I, you know, are trying to do a better job of this. We came out of the temple yesterday and we saw a woman in her ward who lost her husband. Um, she's in her 60s, so he died early. And we just, with intention, asked, how is you know, how are you doing with Tom being gone? How long has Tom been gone? And she knew exactly how many months and days. And so we just used his name, talked about his name, and wanted to keep, you know, the funerals passed, the initial sort of wave of ward supports passed, but we wanted to keep the conversation going about her husband, who's now gone. Now, we're not perfect at that. That's just a little thing. But, you know, it's there's this chapter is full of people and their suggestions on what we can do to because Latter-day Saints want to bear more in comfort. I think we want to do the right thing and it sometimes we just don't know what to do. So this chapter I think helps us to know better what to do after listening to some of these suggestions. Yes, I would agree. And as a widower myself. Oh, I didn't um, know that, Richard. Yes, as a widower myself. Um uh, I really, it took me about two months before I 
really cried. And wow. maybe it might have even been three months. And I was at that time um, going back to school because of teaching and and um, getting the teaching credential. And I still remember the day that I left um, the university and I got about a block away and I just started crying. I couldn't even drive. I had to pull over. And I just cried and cried and cried. And um, it just came so unexpectedly. And it was a sign that, uh, you know, I was grieving. I just wasn't, I guess, letting it out yet. And so it does take time. And so What's your I, wife's name? My wife was Claudia. And Claudia, been, how long yeah. did she? We How long has people gone? We were married 38 years, and she died of breast cancer. Wow. Yeah. And then um, very shortly after that, I uh, met my wife now of Amy. And um, so, but I, we had somebody in our ward who lost their husband, and, and I was talking to her, and I said, I know how you feel. I, yeah. I, I, I understand. And for some people, it just takes time. And I think even with me, it just, it took, what what triggered it when I left the university, I have no idea. I had about a 40-minute drive to get home, but um, uh, it just overwhelmed me. And uh, I just, I felt better after it was over, but I was able to, to move on. All right, well. And thanks for sharing that. And I think grief is I'm not I think grief is a, a healthy human emotion and faithful Latter-day Saints grieve Elder Holland's grieving with something you would know firsthand when you say I know how you feel you can say that Richard I can't yeah <laughs> um, my wife of so many years is still with me so but I think sitting with people and listening to them and acknowledging their pain and keeping the conversation going and not moving on just because a short period of time, not saying, well, have, why haven't you gotten over this yet? Or any of those comments that that's more about us wanting to move on than sitting with somebody in their ongoing grief. Correct. So, yes. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yes. And we got somebody in our ward who lost two children uh, due to medical, oh due to medical reasons. And to me, I, I just can't imagine how somebody goes through that, but uh, they got through it and, and um, but you just got to allow time for grief. The next chapter is a favorite of mine. Um, single, single. I want to say single sisters that started slipping out, but single That's men, fine. single men and sisters. Uh, it's difficult for them. And I've had on my podcast uh, qu quite a few singles, and I ask how they deal with it. And and some are getting in their fifties, and of course we have Sherry Do, who's uh, yeah, up there in her years, and and um, it it is difficult because we we feel if somebody's not married, they're not trying hard enough. Or <laughs> I, I I remember I was working at the Los Angeles Temple, and we had a young man back from his mission for five or six years, and he still wasn't married, and we were all you know saying. Give us a minute. We'll go get a single sister right here. We've got several single sisters here that are just would just die to know you, and and we can get you set up. And he eventually did marry. I think about after eight or nine years. But we and we were doing it in a teasing way, but at the time I didn't realize how maybe hurtful it was. Also, 
Yeah, you're pretty thoughtful, um, sensitive guy, Richard. And this chapter has a section for people who have been divorced, people that have been widowed or widowed, widow or widower and never married. There's kind of a range of stories in here, but it's under this broad umbrella of single Latter-day Saints. And more than half of the members of the church are single, and that'll probably continue. And I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. <laughs> Uh, my wife and I, and my wife probably led on this in our YSA ward, wanted to create a culture that you're whole now. And you're whole now because your heavenly parents love you and you're a divine cre creation. And she, she, we didn't want to make the cult culture that you're whole once you get married or once you get that degree or once you get out of debt. Um, and so I think that comes from a position of you've, I think you make better decisions when you feel you're whole and complete now. We didn't keep track of how many people were getting married in our wards. We didn't talk about it. We figured the YSAs knew, and they didn't need us um, talking about that. And partly is our own story. We were married in our late 20s. And in the book I talk about, I was felt pretty at peace being single into my late 20s. I felt I was doing everything I was supposed to do, but Latter-day Saint culture was very at peace with me. <laughs> and so, and it caused me to look inward in an unhealthy way. And I thought, well, is there something wrong with me? And I got through that, but it gave me more um, empathy for single Latter-day Saints. So that doesn't take progress off the table or desire to be married. It just comes from a position of strength that, you know, we need to feel, if you're single, whole and complete now, and we need to treat you in our culture and in our wards as whole and complete now. And and the church is doing, I think, a wonderful job of calling single people. That's changed so much. That's not a doctrinal change. Just a policy change that, you know, if a single man aged up to about 30, he couldn't be an ordinance worker in the temple, a divorced person couldn't be an ordinance worker in the temple after it had to be a period of time. Um, in single stakes, um, a single man can serve and a single woman in ways they couldn't earlier. So I think our church is just working really hard um, to value single people and and not say, well, you can really contribute to the church once you're married. Um, we need you contributing now. Your gifts, your you know, helps us great Zion. And we see you as whole and complete now, and you should see yourself whole as complete now. And yeah, marriage may happen for you, and we, you, I don't want to take hope off the table. It won't happen, but I think you need to get on with your life and focus on things you could control, like your relationship with your heavenly parents and your Savior, and um, and and still do the things in your circle of control to find your partner. But recognize that may not happen, and that's okay. Well, that then leads us to the final chapter of couples and having children or not having children. Yeah, this is, can be a touchy subject for couples that don't have children. And in our culture, we some I've done this. This is the book I wish I'd read myself 20 years ago, because it's a lot of this work I'm doing is just repentance for what I've thought or said in my own journey. Um, so I would ask couples that have been married five or three or four years is probably when I'd start. When are you having kids? When is it time to settle down? And 
sometimes, as we all know, you know, they aren't able to have kids, and that is triggering for them to come to church and wonder if they're going to be asked if they're having children and not being able to have children. And so, yeah, part of our doctrine is to have children. We I mean, we make that covenant in the temple, but then we also honor personal revelation. And there are stories in this book of people that don't feel impressed to have biological children, but adopt. Um, people that do both, people that have foster children, people that are impressed to have one or two children. And so it's creating, it's back to this name of the book is Good Shit Zion. And the, the idea there is Good Shit Zion represents our church is strong enough to have differences with on the boat. And that we're actually, Elder Cook talks about unity and diversity. And there's diverse family types on the boat, you know, some with they're single, some with single with kids, some married with few kids or lots of kids or biological kids or mix. And all that diversity, we can be unified in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And maybe we can do even a better job of lifting the hands around us because we have all these different lived experiences to connect with people and help them. So, you know, I grew up, Richard, in a world where Zion was sameness, where every it's, I grew up in Salt Lake City, and everybody was the same. It was a wonderful upbringing in the 70s, and I thought that's what Zion is. But now I feel like Zion is um, unity and diversity and taking all our God-given differences and looking at them as a good thing, but we're unified in the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we're not trying to make everybody fit in to a certain type of Latter-day Saint, but we're creating square holes and round holes so people can belong on the fam in this chapter specifically, the family type that they've chosen to have. And that might involve a husband that stays at home and a working mom or vice versa or both working. And we honor personal revelation for parents to make the right decisions for themselves, for their careers, and how to raise their children, how many children to have. And it, it goes back to the very first conversation. We don't judge. If we have a different conclusion for what's right for our family, we honor their ability to have different personal revelation for their family. And we support and love them and recognize that's a wonderful thing. So it's creating space for people that have different family types and helping to, no one should feel like they're a second class Latter-day Saint because they're single, because they're divorced, um, because they have one child. Um, all the differences we might have, no one should feel like they're less faithful or a second class Latter-day Saint. Everybody's the first-class Latter-day Saint. Yes, I would agree with that. And um, I want to thank you for being on this podcast. And um, I think the book, in my opinion, the book fits a lot of needs for our members of the church. And I, I again, I think the value of the books that you've written have to do with the backstories and the stories that people yeah. tell. I, I, I think that uh, I'm not discrediting your words in the book, but but the real power in the book is the stories that you have, the real stories of real people to help us gather, well, a different perspective and to actually do what the book says is to listen, to learn, and to love. Thank you, but, Richard. Before we end here, is there any last message you would like to give us? 
Well, I love to share why I believe in the spirit. Um, because I've sort of dealt with the complexities of LGBTQ people stepping away from the church and I don't get surprised anymore by something new I've learned. And so the reason I stay in the church is because of the unique doctrine that came through the prophet Joseph Smith that is unique to our Christian faith. And that's heavenly parents and our divine nature of their spirit as their spirit children, um, understanding the plan of salvation our pre-earth life, why we're here in an imperfect, mortal, bruising world in a post-earth life and context for that. Um, uh, Book of Mormon, another testimony of Jesus Christ. Uh, better understanding of the Savior and his atonement and his love for us, modern-day prophets, um, temples that empower us through those covenants. So, But I used to say, I, I know Joseph was the prophet. I just stopped there, Richard. And my marketing guy that goes into features and benefits now goes into the benefits. So what's, so why is that important? And that's what I just said. And that, those things bring hope and healing and peace in my life. Um, and is the grounding foundation of why I um, stay in this church and why I, I invite others to stay and others to consider joining. Well, Richard, thank you very much for being on the podcast and um, just wish you a, a great day. Thank you, Richard. Richard's books are available at cedarfort.com, deseretbook.com, and of course, on Amazon. Your support means the world to us. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please take a moment to give it a thumbs up and share your uplifting comments. By doing so, you will help others discover this podcast and join our growing community of listeners. Lastly, don't forget to explore the other podcast I host, The Busy Latter-day Saint. In each episode, I have the privilege of interviewing incredible members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints from all around the world who share their personal experiences and unique insights on scripture study. The podcast is spiritually uplifting and a treasure trove of different approaches to studying the scriptures.